Welcome to Women and Manufacturing, where accomplished women interview accomplished women, with your host, Jennifer McNelly. Welcome to Women in Manufacturing Radio. I'm Jennifer McNelly, President of 180 Skills and host for today's show. Please join today's conversation on Twitter at hashtag women and MFG. Women represent a vast talent pool in the U.S. economy. We total 47% of the labor force, but only 29% of the manufacturing workforce. From my perspective, where there's a gap, there's an opportunity. At, manufacture, at Women in Manufacturing Radio, we're interviewing women with stories to share. And I'm honored today to be joined by Haley Stevens. Haley's a little bit of a different candidate than I've interviewed to date. She's actually a manufacturing candidate running for Congress in Michigan's 11th District. Haley, thanks for joining us here today. Well, thank you, Before Jennifer. We... It's great to be on the show. You bet. I'm really excited about our conversation. Before we dive into your journey um, in our discussion today, talk to me a little bit about why you're running for Congress as a manufacturing candidate. You bet. Uh, my race for, for Congress, in many ways, I, I like to say, came out of the manufacturing shop floor. I was working in a digital manufacturing research lab. I was seeing new technology created, uh, pro proliferate, uh, go through the technology adoption phases, and I thought, we are moving at such a lightning pace in manufacturing and where there are challenges there are opportunities and I saw a kind of a missing voice in our nation's capital for advanced manufacturing for the manufacturing workforce and I picked up the phone and I started talking to people and I said I'm, I'm thinking about something kind of out of the box kind of different than what I've been doing for the last 10 years and the response was tremendous, and I remember uh, some of the early stages of conversations with people in the district where I'm running for Congress, which is Michigan's 11th district. This is southeastern Michigan. It is what we call the metro Detroit area, the suburbs of Detroit, home to Chrysler, home to dozens and dozens of manufacturing um, companies connected to the automotive supply chain and con connected to our diversifying industry that we have in Michigan. And I just thought, gosh, if I can get to the nation's capital, I can be a proven and experienced voice that can represent the manufacturing economy of the future. That's excellent. Um, and I'm not surprised. You know, we need more voices in Congress that represent manufacturing. I often think, personally, with a long career inside the Beltway, you know, I'm outside of the Beltway now because that's where real jobs happen and real individuals need support and a voice. So from that manufacturing leadership voice, what do you see as the greatest challenges manufacturers face today? I think there's a there's a couple of things that, that I, I see falling into the challenge bucket where it meets um, the public sector or the policy um, making arena. One is is certainly around um, 
workforce development around the skills gap and the role that our policymakers can play in terms of fostering uh, job training programs, public-private partnerships, support for the small and mid-sized manufacturers who so often struggle with hiring, retaining, and doing on-the-job training. We've got Department of Labor uh, dollars that go to the states that support workforce training, sometimes in the retraining arena. Where are we providing some of that capital access assistance to our small and mid-sized manufacturers to really help them do that continual job training on the floor? Um, sometimes it's also something as simple as getting out of the way, fostering that climate. The the other thing, Jennifer, that's, that's on my mind in terms of some of the uh, challenges and opportunities that we have um, from the nation's capital to support our manufacturing base falls squarely within R&D. And I'll tell you, when I was looking to launch this run for Congress, I just kept thinking, this is the R&D economy. And I was taking a look at the budget that was being proposed, and I thought, we are cutting way too much from R&D. And if we are not innovating here in America, it's going overseas, and it's going to go overseas in the blink of an eye. So we've really got to continue to foster this climate of innovation and support throughout the supply chain to embrace new technologies, digital manufacturing opportunities, as as well as um, uh, other types of uh, patents that are coming forward. We want those to hit our supply chain first. I'm going to unpack a couple things uh, before I dig into your personal journey, and I'll start with hitting on the passion of workforce. And a couple of things that you mentioned, um, one of which is learning never ends. And, you know, here at 180, we fundamentally believe that life is a journey that requires skills, and we truly need to be a nation that has skills on demand and just in time and where and when they're needed. And so much of our focus in the public education system and you know, as a former DOL exec, I can, I can speak to that side of the ledger, too. In the public sector, is focused on what I call the lockstep traditional path. And that really doesn't serve us as an economy anymore because no longer is education a destination. It truly is a lifelong journey. So that's exciting to hear that you really want to think about that differently. The other is really just the, the importance of research and development as it gets to next-gen innovation. And you're absolutely right, we don't have a cohesive industrial policy that supports innovation. And, and is it government's role to incentivize and create and incubate, or is it government's role to get out of the way and allow industry to do that? Um, I think that's an interesting conversation that's certainly going on at the federal level. And then what happens at the federal, state, and community level as all those things get unpacked. So, you know, it's exciting to hear and equally having the voice of leadership in manufacturing and the perspective of a woman that's walked that walk and talked that talk. So um, if I can, let me kind of take you back to your early years. Um, what was your favorite subject in school? I loved history. Uh, my, I, I think that, that um, takes the place as first, although second to that would be math. I really enjoyed math from a young age, and um, even though sometimes my math classes didn't always go the way they wanted, they really challenged me, but I, I loved history, and I loved reading about um, world history and, and particularly American history, and that really shaped my life in some pretty profound ways. 
Excellent. Did you have a teacher, a family member, or a key influencer that helped you shape um, your career trajectory? Yes, my mother, and she doesn't know it. Uh, my mother was uh, a big influence in my life. She grew up in a generation that, um, as a woman, uh, she was told she had to have a certain career path, and that had to be either education or uh, home ec. Uh, and and my mother really loved um, the the sciences, and uh, she always has told me the story about when she was in high school and she wanted to take an industrial design course, and the high school wouldn't let her. And she remembers going to college and feeling like she could only take or study uh, a few things. Well, my mother went on to run a business um, as a chief financial officer. She was known for um, uh, kind of unpacking some of the difficult uh, softwares and technologies, and this is in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, and my, my dad has um, – a real fun story about some software that my mother figured out and claiming that, my goodness, uh, you know, someone could have bought that and maybe they could have made a whole bunch of money off of that, but it was just something with my mother and Radio Shack and, you know, her, her tinkering around. <laughs> and my mother was also um, a wood carver, and she's a, uh, a pretty talented craftsperson. And so growing up as um, an observer of this uh, really showed me and gave me the energy and the charge to pursue whatever I wanted to pursue. And I view my mother as a trailblazer, and I also give her credit for not always taking the top-down approach, but kind of guiding me uh, in ways that led to the career that I have now. That's wonderful. So if I have one piece of guidance, I have found myself in this reflective point in my life as well. Tell your mother send her a link to the show. Hey, Mom, by the way. <laughs> I think that's it, – it's oftentimes, you know, sometimes we forget to stop and say thanks all the way along the road. And a uh, big influence for me was one of my math teachers in elementary school, whose name was Mr. Hard, who told me I was good at math. And because of his name, I never thought it was a barrier. And I wish at some point I would have said thanks. So that's wonderful. What a great story. And your mom sounds like a true trailblazer. And – Boy, if she's a wood carver, I'm envious. In my mind, I'm a really great um, wood products producer, but in reality, I'm not quite that talented. So that's exciting. Um, did you have yeah, a Yeah, I don't know toy? how many people can say their their mother owns a bandsaw, but my mother oh. proudly owns a bandsaw <laughs> that's in her garage at, that she uses. And Jennifer, she's also on Twitter. So I will be sure to let her know to follow our hashtag and to retweet us. Oh, excellent. Excellent. And, you know, post a picture or two of her work. That's awesome. <laughs> we'll all be looking for it. So did you have a favorite toy as a kid, favorite game? I, you know, I, I loved Legos. I, my brother and I um, just loved playing with Legos, and um, we we loved um, playing uh, different games on the the computer as as well. But we we spent a a lot of time um, tinkering around. There's 
a couple of great pictures of me with, you know, the building blocks and, and things along those lines. And I, I, I think the reason why that one sticks out is I still love Legos to this day. <laughs> That's great. That's wonderful. Um, I'm going to flip to your present day journey, and I want to uh, dig a little bit deeper into um, what really makes you a manufacturing candidate. Let's help our audience understand what what you're fighting for. Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned a part of my my mother's journey, and that was um, connected to a business that my parents started right out of um, college, which was a landscaping company. And in the winter, they would do snow plowing and. I remember growing up with a bobcat in my garage and a snowplow on the front of my father's Ford truck and just being surrounded by machines. And when I got into college, I remember really being drawn to science policy. I wasn't in the hard-nosed sciences, but I loved science policy, and I particularly felt um, – strongly about science policy given, again, where I thought our federal government should be investing its dollars. And so I got some internships. I got the opportunity to work with the American Association for the Advancement of Science when I was a senior in college. And I went straight through from undergrad to graduate uh, school. And this was, uh, you know, it's the time when our economy was starting to really rumble. And I remember um, writing some articles or, or just some, you know, personal thought pieces around our economy and uh, thinking about the challenges that we were facing and, and really believing that it was because we had just not invested and promoted our manufacturing sector enough. And this was just as a student. Then I got the opportunity to kind of roll up my sleeves. I was, you know, volunteering on some political campaigns in Michigan. And Michigan, in in many ways, is, you know, the the heart of our manufacturing economy. I, I know some of my other Great Lake states might want to elbow elbow me on that, but with our automotive sector, our rich history in American manufacturing as tied to what Henry Ford created in Detroit. I I really saw that economy, and we all did. We saw that kind of coming under challenge. In 2008, we had the the uh, the fastest drop in automotive sales in the history of the automobile, and that posed some really big questions to our federal government because our financial services sector was bottoming out, and our Treasury Secretary in 2008 was making a series of recommendations to the United States Congress saying, we we cannot have the, the uh, financial services sector economy bottom out. We're going to see a, a global recession. And so there was a lot of money put in to, uh, you know, uh, g- giving a line of uh, credit or floating some of the big banks. There was the insurance market. There was the housing market that was also uh, being extraordinarily challenged and was receiving lines of assistance, financial assistance from the Treasury Department. And our automotive sector was also in kind of in that space. And I remember coming out of political work and being back in Washington, D.C., because that's where I was doing my graduate school. And I had finished up graduate school, and I was 
kind of given an opportunity to to work on uh, President Obama's transition into the White House from when he won his campaign to to when he was moving into the White House. And I remember working on that special project thinking, if I'm going to do anything in this this exciting new administration, if I have the chance, I want to do something for Michigan. And I'm reading everything I could about the American um, auto sector and what what the what they were facing, which was that GM and Chrysler were looking at liquidation. The Bush administration had given them uh, a, a lifeline, uh, but it also left some of the bigger decisions to who was, who's ever going to win the presidential election in 2008, and that was Barack Obama. And so I ended up getting the the job of, you know, chief of staff to the, the president's uh, senior counselor for the auto rescue, Steve Ratner. And it was in part Steve needed somebody with a lot of energy who understood the Michigan economy and was just going to get some things done on the operation side for this project. And so, Jennifer, I found myself in a pretty overwhelming moment in American history, uh, which was the $80 billion managed bankruptcy of General Motors and Chrysler, really one of the biggest industrial deals of of the century if if not it was the biggest deal of of the century and we we made a lot of um big decisions quickly based on a series of recommendations from our automotive sector and a lot was done very quickly uh coming out of that the president um asked one of the other co-heads of the automotive group to serve as his um, senior counselor for manufacturing policy. And I was asked to stay on the team and kind of help set up that operation, what ended up becoming the White House Office of Manufacturing Policy. And this was uh, a, a front view, uh, front row seat to the uh, creation of a new agenda that came out of the federal government for for one of the you know first times in 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 recent history which was a real concerted effort to do cohesive industrial policy focused on R&D tech transfer and workforce development and i was in this ethereal policy making world for some time and i just that michigan kept coming out of me. I wanted mm-hmm. to get on the ground. I wanted to get back, you know, just into the, you know, the 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 jobs and into the companies themselves. And so after serving in the administration for the first year, uh, or excuse me, for the first term, I I ended up returning to the Midwest and working with manufacturers on uh, innovation policy on export assistance on workforce development and I can proudly say I am a candidate for US Congress that can certainly talk about workforce development and job training but that I've also led job training initiatives I've led the creation of the country's first online training program in digital manufacturing and design technology. I've spearheaded export assistance programs for small and mid-sized manufacturers. I've crawled around 
dozens and dozens of manufacturing shop floors, largely small to midsize. I have worked alongside manufacturers, and I've proudly worked in a manufacturing research lab. And so that's part of my journey. That's how I got this experience and then this desire to, to run for office, to represent an industry I love and care so much about. Yeah, Haley, that's, um, I will say again, back to oftentimes in the policy environment, there are unintended consequences, good and bad, by the time it hits the street at the um, ground level with our nation's manufacturers. And, and being able to bring forward that voice of, um, this might be a you know, practicality, <laughs> you know, what happens in policy ultimately has potential true impact, negative and positive, I would say, and being able to represent that that business owner from your journey, I think, is very powerful. Um, you know, one, I'm going to ask a little bit of a follow-up question on the automotive bankruptcy unique point in time, because I, I do think within this nation and in the conversations that we have around you know, there was a point in time where I could argue we let go of our manufacturing legacy and we were going to be a knowledge economy. And through the Great Recession, we saw that that really wasn't the reality of life. And in doing that, if we are not making things in this country and making manufacturing competitive, it has a true impact. And, you know, I'd use the National Association of Manufacturers Chief Economist, Chad Moutre, who talks about the multiplier effect of manufacturing in communities and it's you know depending on if you're in aviation and aerospace or in automotive somewhere between you know 1.3 or 1.4 to 1.5 multiplier so for every investment in manufacturing there's a cascading impact into the community and i i'd be curious from your candidate's perspective of what you saw was going on in 2008 as we are watching the bottom drop out of our economy to the job growth, because even, you know, I'm just down the street in Indianapolis, and I know manufacturers are continuing to struggle because they can't find workers. So so we have rebounded back to, to have opportunities that are going unfilled. And what did some of the policies mean to be able to have that recovery and create economic opportunity for the citizens in, in the district that you're trying to represent? Yeah, that's such a great question. And while we were working on these policies and these initiatives, it was so dumbfounding, Jennifer, because we were in the middle of a recession. We had, uh, you know, in some communities, double-digit un unemployment. Uh, and yet we had unfilled manufacturing jobs. And, and yeah. you kept scratching your head thinking, how do we have open jobs that we can't fill? And how do we figure this out? Because in some ways it seems like it should be pretty simple to just bring workforce talent or find that workforce talent or tap into it or bring people together. And it's not oftentimes a linear process, as you were talking about earlier. And so what this administration did 
that I think was very compelling in addition to producing white papers and shining a light and bringing stakeholders to the nation's capital and holding stakeholder meetings all throughout the Midwest and energizing and engaging a, a manufacturing um, conversation that was long overdue, is we put an emphasis on public-private partnerships, large and small. And many of them began as microcosms, where you had a couple of companies, uh, OEMs oftentimes, who were working with uh, nonprofits or uh, industry associations, and most importantly, universities and community colleges in various regions that really wanted to kind of tap into an innovation opportunity, a product line opportunity, and they sat down with the Economic Development Administration. Uh, you would remember, because it was Indiana-based, that the Economic Development Administration was a uh, federal funder, a co-funder alongside uh, John Deere and a couple of other OEMs in Ohio State and Purdue, and they created the National Digital Engineering Manufacturing Consortium. And while that, while that consortium is a mouthful, what that uh, project ended up doing is it connected small and mid-sized manufacturers to the supercomputer technology of OSU and Purdue. And these small and mid-sized manufacturers, they were the suppliers to the OEMs. And so they were uh, able to unlock new uh, product lines because they were able to innovate or develop uh, the, the products using the, the very expensive supercomputer technology. And that was just one example. The big one that I know my friends, uh, you know, in, in the manufacturing policy world uh, will care a lot about is Manufacturing USA, which is a multi-pronged public-private partnership that has been spearheaded through the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy uh, to, to co-invest alongside dozens and dozens of OEMs and small mid-sized manufacturers and leading research um, universities as well as community colleges to do R&D and to do workforce development as appropriate. Um, a lot of times there's, you know, in communities like mine, there's some great programs already in place. Our Michigan Works uh, network is very strong on the training. Um, in my district, I specifically have Oakland Community College that is a phenomenal training center. But these public-private partnerships where industry and government can come together for outcomes, that is really quite profound. And the last little bit of this, Jennifer, is attached to the mayors. The mayors and automotive um, community council that was uh, existing before the, the, the downturn but really came into play, helped federal policymakers connect to the on-the-ground needs of the communities that really relied on manufacturing and helped us develop um, cohesive policy and proven solutions, particularly those attached to Recovery Act dollars that could go right into use. And you see that in my community. We've got um, a part of Michigan's 11th district 
uh, a city called Wixom, and Wixom was home to the Ford Lincoln plant that shut down in 2007. And today, Wixom is home to a proliferating industry. We've got a wonderful innovation park that looks like something you would see in Silicon Valley with companies growing at scale, and it's really quite thrilling to see that change from what was in play in 2008 to where we are today. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of people are looking for, I hate to say it, the silver bullet that solves the problem, but what you're bringing forward is the complexity of the challenges that uh, that we as a nation are facing. It is a, There is a federal role, there is a state role, there is a local role, there is a public role, there is a private role, <laughs> and I think in a lot of ways we're ferreting through and it doesn't look the same. And you know that's the that's the beauty of of the country is this is a legacy country in which those tensions between federal federal state local have always existed and those tensions between public and private sector but through that as we navigate the respect that everybody has a role everyone needs to have a voice at the table and that everyone is in the end driving towards outcomes and performance because in the end you know if everybody had a great manufacturing job, we wouldn't have a lot of the challenges that we as a nation face, where, where in some cases I feel like we're, we've lost hope. And, and maybe it's the Pollyanna in me, but I tend to think that every solution in the end is anchored in a manufacturing answer. Therefore, <laughs> focus on what is going to grow and build the economy. So that's a very important perspective, and I would even say from sort of 2008 to today, you've seen a lot of really good happen. I'm still scratching my head on the why we have open jobs, but, you know, that's why I'm here in Indiana now at 180, because there should be no barrier to getting people the skills they need to get into a really great manufacturing job. People just don't know that they're there or how to get them. So that's something I'm going to look forward to working on together. Um, Haley, did you really have, you talked about your mom as a major influence, and I'd even be curious as a candidate for Congress, um, you know, I would say back in the 1980s, my sister stood on the steps of Capitol when Time Life magazine did a cover, and this wasn't about the House, but was about the Senate, and said, what if, and they put 98 women and two men on the steps of the Capitol, and what if worlds were reversed. Do you have... A mentor that is supporting your journey because politics is a business and I know that and it can be a difficult business to navigate even to those that want to serve in the capacity that you're talking about how and and women are not 50% of Congress right now so how are you navigating that and do you have any guiding lights, any support, both in your journey as a manufacturing candidate and just as a woman candidate seeking this very important public office? Yeah, that's a, a great question and, and certainly quite timely. I have uh, been thrilled with the campaign process to date and the people who have stepped up uh, to volunteer, the grassroots effort underway. Uh, my, my district is Western Wayne County and Oakland County, and I've got 23 communities, and I think I have a champion uh, in every single one of those communities uh, working on behalf of uh, what we're trying to accomplish here. And 
what's been so thrilling as part of this journey has also been the retired uh, manufacturing uh, executives and workers, uh, people who kind of are refusing to retire but are doing uh, some of the, you know, the the extracurricular work that they find in in retirement, uh, like if it's uh, mentorship or, or, or assistance. And so there's a couple of key voices that uh, have have really become a part of my campaign just on the ground that that are um, they that are really providing a, a kind of a guiding light. There's two other people who are quite significant, Jennifer, that are also um, helping me day in and day out. And and that's former Congressman Mark Schauer, who um, served in the United States Congress um, uh, as a representative from Michigan uh, during the recession years. Um, Mark and I have been working since uh, before I launched my campaign, we've been working together, and he has um, provided a, a lot of mentorship, a lot of advice, uh, and just in terms of campaign operation and outreach, as well as how to continue to communicate the message of my campaign, which is around the new economy, the advanced manufacturing economy, the future of Michigan. And the other person who is very personally significant to me is is another man named David Bonnier. Uh, David Bonnier served in the United States Congress uh, for 25 years, uh, representing uh, Michigan, uh, not my district, but just uh, just outside my district. And David Bonnier was the manufacturing candidate of the 20th century. He um, represented uh, the union workers during the NAFTA negotiations, and he's also been a fighter for environmental sustainability. And I'm going to make a plug here because David just wrote a book that I think is a must read for anybody looking to understand uh, the uh, uh, evolution of uh, some key policies that came out of uh, the 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 last you know 25 years before um, George Bush um, got in office. Uh, David was a, certainly a, a really significant figure, but David has been important to my race in part because I am the age that he was when he was elected to Congress, and I am really pushing to be that next generation of firebrand leadership coming out of Michigan, that next round of advocates for uh, the the trade deals of the 21st century that we need to put forward, the workforce development programs that we need to implement and partner with our schools and our companies on, as well as some of the other uh, pushes that we need to make around innovation opportunities right here in Michigan. Ten years ago, they were writing Michigan off the map. We know that. I mean, they were singing our song song when the autos were taking the downturn, and we were truly at the nadir of the Great Recession. And if you look at my region today, Jennifer, we've got 75% of the R&D and autonomous vehicle technology. So when I think about what I'm going to work on when I get to where I'm going. The other tack on here, which I think and we know is so important to manufacturing, is 
infrastructure policy and an infrastructure mm -hmm. agenda that not only allows us to do the maintenance and repair, but also ca capture some of the opportunities around the future where we pilot and test uh, autonomous vehicles or electric vehicles or some of those components of those technologies. We want to do that, and we are going to do that from a place where I'm from, which is which is Metro Detroit. So I, I've been lucky with yeah. those mentors, and I, I certainly have also um, – been been fortunate as well to have um, friends from the auto rescue days as as well as some other individuals who have have certainly stepped up and um, uh, helped me with my race and helped me think through how to uh, put together a winning campaign. That's great to hear. And you know, I do think you bringing up the infrastructure policy is incredibly important. And and I think what you're highlighting in this is you know infrastructure is about roads and bridges but it's about a lot more and I'd hearken through some of the lessons that I learned during the five years that I was engaged with the World Economic Forum and in some cases you could argue um, industry 4.0 is at the front end of the wild wild west because connectivity of data is no longer just a local thing it's a global thing there's this whole other set of it, policy implications that I don't even think we truly understand. So I, I do think we as a nation need to, you know, we need to take care of things today, but we constantly need to be having our eye on the horizon for what's going to hit us before we even knew it was a discussion point. And making policy, I know, is incredibly difficult, but you got to have both of those lenses. So it's good, to, it's, it's good that you brought that back into the conversation. Um, and I'm excited that you have the mentors that you do, um, two very distinguished leaders from the great state of Michigan. And it's encouraging to hear, and I think it's important because what you reminded me of, especially for women in non-traditional fields, is we succeed as much by the women that mentor us as we do the men that support us. And oftentimes that is as important, if not more important, just because of the sheer numbers um, that are in leadership roles. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. And so we've acknowledged that you've had great mentors along the way. I, I do think you play an important role as a role model yourself. So what are you doing today <laughs> other than taking on this really grand challenge of, that you are going to succeed at of running for Congress to help inspire the next generation? How do you think about your role and responsibility as it relates to the next generation of leaders? Yeah, there's something really special underway in our, our country right now with the younger voices that are stepping up into the uh, the arena, to the to the dialogue, to the campaign process, and to the policy making process. One of the joys, Jennifer, of my uh, campaign has been working with students. Last summer, because I got into this race early, I, I felt the, the earth moving beneath me and knew I had an opportunity to put together a, a, a campaign. And so I, I launched at the, you know, at about this time last year. And I found myself, you know, hearing from students and hearing from uh, people throughout the district. And I thought, what would be great is for us to have um, a, a student uh, gathering 
And so I had just invited everyone over to my house. I had one um, student volunteer who had um, an an association that she was responsible for leading, and so she helped plan the event, and we had about 25, 30 students um, over to my house. Uh, Everyone met my mom and uh, some of my campaign team, and I uh, was able to recruit interns as, as part of my race. And I have been really, really happy with um, the younger voices that have um, stepped up into my campaign. I've also taken this a little bit further, which is not everybody has time to volunteer, especially with the rigors of school and uh, the after-school activities and, and other commitments. And one of the premiums I've put on the campaign trail is I have an open line and I'm accessible mm. and you can always reach me. And as that pertains to the student community. I have really been able to um, work with some of the students who've been inspired by my race, um, if it's on um, a student project or if it was an interview for a school newspaper, of which I've done a few. And uh, that I that kind of work I really like because this is about – getting other folks to, and particularly our students, it's getting their talents to shine. And there's nothing like uh, collaborating with a student leader on, um, you know, an article or a project and then seeing it come to fruition and seeing their work on display. And there's been a couple of those, and I've really enjoyed sharing that work and, um, shining a light on those students and watching them grow. So some of the students that were a part of my campaign last year, they're now in their first year of college. So we're mm. keeping up and we're hearing their progress and I'm, you know, that that open line so I'll get reports back from them and it's really been very rewarding. That's exciting and I do think um our next generation has and is demonstrating a very powerful voice that when they speak, we need to listen. They are our future. That's that's fabulous. That's fabulous. Um, so words of wisdom. Um, you know, often we learn the most from our greatest challenges. Um, I'm, I'm a little curious as to, we've talked a little bit about the journey that you've traveled. Um, tell me what you see as your greatest professional achievement and what's been your greatest challenge? Well, the achievement component is the relationships and the the network. Uh, I've I've really had the the privilege to do both, which is forging relationships within my community with within the region that I am running for Congress and do very meaningful work um, with our economic development organizations, our community colleges, our businesses, as well as our public schools. And being able to know the the uh, superintendent, assistant superintendent of Novi Public Schools or know one of the CEOs of a manufacturing company that's just up the street from me is very rewarding. And 
in addition to that, I've also been able to do some of that on the national level, having worked for a national lab and having served in a presidential administration. And if it's all politics is local, it's really rewarding to see some of those relationships come to fruition and um, provide real meaning and value for the, the work that we're trying to do. I think on the the challenge front, um, I, I think one of the things that I um, – would consider a, a professional challenge is managing through change. I think that um, oftentimes um, there's uh, uh, things that that come up in a workplace that if it's a you know a, a person taking a new position and leaving, or if it's uh, a, a change in a, a federal policy that is going to now impact the work or the direction that you thought you were going to take with a project. I, I think that's something I'm always working on, which is managing through change and managing through some of the, the changing dynamics on, underway. Well, and that's important because if there's one thing I often say from stage around manufacturing is the only constant is change. Therefore, I, I think that's smart to have it top of mind. Um, so I'm curious what your experienced self might say to your teenage self. Oh, my goodness. I, I think it would be um, that the future is bright, uh, and it's exciting, and it's not what you think. <laughs> it never is, is it? <laughs> no. Wise words. Very wise words. Um, I always like to close out my show because I, I truly appreciate our listeners. I appreciate our guests, and I always like to kind of give a bit of an assignment. So to our listeners today, what challenge or takeaway would you ask of them, Haley? I would ask our listeners to think about uh, some federal policy or um, something that their, their government could do to make their lives easier. And I'd also like to say and ask uh, our listeners today to get engaged and continue to be engaged. I love that you started the show off by mentioning some of the social media challenges, I or assume social media opportunities, and and uh, giving the hashtag that that uh, I I would be glad to repeat, which is hashtag women and manuf women and MFG. I really believe in social media for good. I have uh, enjoyed having the people in the manufacturing community that I have met throughout my career stay connected throughout my campaign. You'll see that I, while I message around my political activity, I am staying very true to my manufacturing work. So I would also really love to invite our listeners to connect with me on Twitter, which is at Haley, H-A-L-E-Y, live, because it is me tweeting, and it is accessible, and it is real, and I would love to hear from you. I think that's a great challenge, and I appreciate um to our listeners, again, whim, hashtag women and MFG, and then at Haley Live. Haley, I do follow your tweets, and you and I have engaged active. And I think what you've asked, that if there are things that need to come to the surface around public policy, you are open to the listeners 
you know, the country is run by those that are engaged. So be part of the answer, be part of the solution that requires engagement. Haley, thank you so much for your time today, for sharing your story on Women in Manufacturing Radio. I am confident that you are a beacon that will inspire others to think of their role on the federal policy level. And who knows, maybe take that step forward. Uh, to our listeners, thank you again for engaging today, and tune in next week for another inspiring story. Thank, thank you so much, Haley, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Women and Manufacturing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.